Listen as God speaks to us from 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 3, 5. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in, a, in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear, no, bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You can be seated. Antes de empezar hoy día, yo quiero decir a los que están escuchando en español que me alegro de que estés aquí esta mañana y que lo siento que no tenemos bastante oidáfonos, uh, no puedo decir esta palabra, oidáfonos para ustedes. Vamos a corregir este problema, pero me alegro de que ustedes están aquí. Y queremos que ustedes sepan que uh, Jesucristo te quiere más que nadie. Y Él uh, te quiere tanto que vio su, su vida uh, en la cruz para usted. Usted resurrectó y Él va a regresar por los que creen en Él. Y es lo que queremos que ustedes sepan esta mañana. So what I've just said is uh, we ran out of uh, earphones this morning for all of our uh, Spanish-speaking folks. So, who are here in the service uh, being translated right now, and I welcome them here and thank them and told them that more than anything, we want them to know that Jesus Christ came, died for them, rose from the dead, and is returning for all those who believe in him. Amen, church? And so, we're so glad all of you are here. No matter what language you speak this morning, we're glad you're here. Uh, we come to uh, this uh, very dear part of this letter uh, that Paul writes to these believers in Thessalonica. And it is a, um, a, an emotionally uh, charged part of the letter. It uh, is packed with emotion. And it reminds me of part of my story that some of you know. Uh, and, and so if you do, bear with me. And if you don't, uh, I came to Christ at the uh, uh, age of 15. Uh, it was a Tuesday night. I went to a revival service with my dad. Um, I thought I was saved. And that night, as a 15-year-old, on that Tuesday night, when the preacher preached, the Holy Spirit began to do a work in me that revealed to me my lostness. 
I didn't know it before then, but I knew it that night. And I recall being unable to wait for the pastor to finish. I thought, he's never going to finish so that, uh, as was the custom there and is here at times, I could go to the altar and there pray and give my life uh, to Jesus Christ. And that very night I did. I went to that altar that night and prayed and trusted Christ as my Savior. I was in a church, and the tradition of this church was that we lived for the highs of Sundays and Wednesdays, and uh, it taught me to expect God to do great things when you came to church. I still do. Uh, I'm convinced that uh, God is going to work in your life today in, in a remarkable way if you're open to him. I still hang on to that. I believe that God works very much in that way. But on the downside, uh, no one came alongside me and said, this is what it means to know God. This is how you pray This is how to read and understand the Bible. Um, This is how to make decisions now that you follow Christ. No one did that. And so here I am, a baby in Christ, and uh, I'm treated as if I'm an adult. And uh, it's like bringing a baby home from the hospital and putting him in his room and hoping he figures it out. And so there I was. Went through high school. You see, my conversion wasn't one out of horrible things into not so horrible things. I was a good kid. I uh, was a nerd extraordinaire. I made great grades. I got scholarships into college. I went to college. And even in college, because my parents had drilled these things into me, I didn't do all the things that parents may fear their kids could get into in college. That didn't happen with me. But where the battle raged with me was between my ears, my, my intellect, my, my ability to process intellectually God. I remember as a sophomore sitting in an English class in college, a very liberal college I attended. I remember sitting there and I remember saying words about uh, that I really didn't think Jesus was all that he was cracked up to be. Intellectually, I struggled with the tenets of the faith, the veracity of scripture, uh, these things that some of you sit here today and wrestle with. I struggled with those things. No one had ever come alongside me, uh, but things, habits were so drilled into me that through four years of college, honestly, I may have missed two Sundays in worship. I went every Sunday But nothing happened. Nothing. It's strange, but nothing got through. There there was no quantitative or qualitative change in my life. Then I graduated. I taught school for a year. I went to grad school, and in grad school, it all came to a head. I remember, and I've told you this, being alone, Uh, In my apartment on a a weeknight, lying down on my sofa, the the difficulties of life, the the success that I'd had academically up until that point 
was uh, not overriding the difficulties of life. And, and I couldn't quite figure out why I was uh, doing so well, but not doing so well simultaneously. And I remember lying on my sofa and looking up at the ceiling and praying this prayer to a God that I honestly didn't know personally, though I had received his salvation for me, if that makes any sense to you. And I remember saying, God, I don't know who you are or what you're up to, but I know I need you. It was that very week that a girl that I dated in college called me and invited me to a church. And on the very next Sunday, I went to church. And when I sat there, the pastor wasn't there. It was an associate. He preached that morning. Thousands of people attended that church. I sat there in that crowded auditorium in one of three morning worship services. And Walt Gilliam got up to preach. And when he did, I thought, how do you know the conversations I've had this week? Who told you? What happened? Well, you see, something happened in me. It happened with that prayer on my sofa. God, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're up to, but I know I need you. God didn't need flowery things from me. He didn't need me to be eloquent in a prayer to him. He needed my heart. He he needed me. And so I prayed that. And the next morning, God began to answer. And he began to disciple me. It still wasn't an individual. It was, it was God through the ministry of this church. The pastor preached a sermon on how to read the Bible. I'd never heard that in my life. And so I finally took my Bible for the first time. And well, it wasn't upside down. All right. So I took my Bible for the first time and started to read. I got a little journal and started to write. He then preached a sermon on how to pray. And when I heard it, I thought, okay, that works. And I, I took notes just, just copious notes, and I began to learn how to pray. And God began to work. And I got so hungry for him, I couldn't imagine life without him. Every single morning, waking up, wanting to be with him. Uh, my point in all of this is that I was a vulnerable target. A vulnerable, weak Christian for that time between 15 and about 23, Satan launched some pretty hefty, hefty missiles my way and he won some battles. It it was hard. At the age of 23, I began to undo some things Satan had done. I began to gain some ground Satan had gotten from me. And so I want to say to you this morning that my heartbeat isn't a church that's filled with thousands of people. Although if they know Christ, that is my heartbeat. My heartbeat is a church that is a birthing center for new babies in Christ who are discipled to maturity in Christ. That is my heartbeat as your pastor. I don't want people to flounder and wonder Uh, through life aimlessly and, and confused and targets of the enemy. And neither does Paul. I would say to you, if we are a church that values vulnerable believers, God will birth brand new babies into this congregation all the time. Why? Because we have a good labor and delivery unit. That's why. 
He knows we care. And he knows that, that we're good with mother baby rooms and that we're good with baby Christians and we'll come alongside them and walk with them. And when they fall on their face, we'll bend over and we'll pick them up and we'll walk with them. It's huge. So how do you do that? Paul gives three ways to value the vulnerable. Number one, passionately love vulnerable believers. Look at this. Paul says, verse 17, but since we were torn away from you. Uh, How did that happen? If you go back to Acts chapter 17, you'll see when Paul arrived in Thessalonica, he preached and taught in the synagogues for uh, three weeks, uh, three Sabbaths after that. They ran him out of town. As a matter of fact, Paul and Silas had to leave town in the middle of the night to escape for their lives. Jason, one of the new converts, uh, the authorities called him in. He posted bail and the church was birthed in Thessalonica. Paul says, when we were torn away from you. That word torn away is an interesting metaphor. Do you remember last week, Paul says we were like a mother among you, a tender mother. We were like a father, an encouraging and exhorting, warning father. Now he says, when we were torn away from you, the word literally in the Greek is orphaned. Paul says, when, when we left, it was like leaving our children You were orphans and we in haste had to leave you. That's how he felt toward these young Thessalonian believers. He felt torn away. In my job as pastor, on more than one occasion, I've been in the unfortunate circumstance of watching uh, kids be taken away from their parents. It is horrific. It is awful. I've watched it just from a, uh, a point of view of, of authorities doing it. And I've watched it as a kid went into death and the parent could do nothing about it. There is nothing pleasant about it to say for Paul that these are orphans as Paul says they are means there is a deep love in him for these Thessalonian believers. Oh, that we as a church would feel such about new believers that we see them as vulnerable, as, as, as orphaned if we are not investing in their lives after we have led them to faith in Christ. That's how Paul felt. He says, for a short time in person, not in heart. He says, I was away from you, but every time my heart beat, it beat Thessalonians. Thessalonians, brand new believers, the law is coming after them, Thessalonians. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Again, I don't do this often, but let me read this to you directly as it is written in the order in the Greek. All the more eagerly we made every effort your faces to see with great longing. Like we we just wanted to see you so badly. All the more greatly 
We just wanted to see you. We were so concerned for your faith. We were so concerned, so concerned, so concerned for your faith. Paul even says, I, Paul, again and again. Like in case you're thinking it's just Silas or it's Timothy, no. No, this is me writing. I, again and again, I so wanted to see you. He passionately loved them. If you're a parent, you know this, right? You know this. On Monday, Hannah texted her mother and me, and she sent us a picture. And the picture that she sent to us was of her foot. She was walking across the cafeteria at at college, and uh, a girl came by, or or, a worker came by, and she had one of those big carts stacked high with trays. All right, do you know the, just the, the, the trays? And she didn't see Hannah, and she rolled over the back of her heel, and when she did, she peeled off about an inch and a half by inch and a half a swath of skin completely, gashed into the heel. And Hannah was in obvious pain. And so Hannah's got a a heavy-duty week coming up. And it's one of those times. Have you ever had those times? Hannah is tough. She's been through a lot. But as I sat at my desk on Monday afternoon, and I saw the text, and I knew some things that were rolling through her week, all I could think of as her daddy was what? I need to hold her. I just need to be with my girl. That's how I felt. I just need to be with her. I cannot explain that. I can, there was no rational reason. Uh, I'm the last person she wants working on her foot. So there's nothing I'll do to help the foot. I don't even want to see it. All right. Have no desire to see it. But everything in me, as her daddy says, get to North Greenville. So I called Wendy and I said, when do you get off work? She told me, I said, works for me. I'll pick you up in Black Mountain. We'll go to North Greenville. And that's what we did. We just went to be with her. That's all. There's nothing rational about that. And there doesn't have to be. Why? I'm her daddy. I'm her daddy. And so in that moment, I just needed to be with my girl. That's all. That's what I needed. Uh, Trent has another surgery scheduled in a couple of weeks. It'll be 12. Number 12, I think, for us, or 13. I remember the last surgery lasted five hours. And when Trent has surgery, you know, they go in, and this time they went in, and they cut the ear completely, and, and they work around this nerve. And they put an electrode on it uh, so that when they bump it with their surgery tools, the electrode lights up. And when it lights up, it says back off because that nerve controls his face. And so we know that every surgery we sit through knowing that they're working around that. And the cholesterol, the tumor that he has grows around that nerve and they literally cut it off of that nerve. In every surgery like that, when the doctor comes out, they come to get us super quick. And they say, come into the recovery room and please make your son smile. Why? Because if he can, they didn't sever the nerve. And if he can't, his face is paralyzed. Every single surgery, that's what we live through. Every one of them. 
And we go into the, uh, the recovery room and we will look at Trent. And as he begins to wake up, we will do all of these things that we think will make him smile. And as soon as he smiles, what do we all do? Doctor, parents, we go, thank you, Lord. Right? You better believe that the whole five hours of that surgery, Wendy and I are sitting there and our hearts are not here. Where are they? They're in the OR. Every time they're in the OR, we are in there. We don't care about, I'm a pastor. Do I care about anybody else in the room then? No, I can't. My heart is there. That's what Paul is saying here. Uh, My heart is with you. When my heart beat, it beat for you. Thessalonians, it beat for you. And I'm saying to you as passionately as I can, is that when we as a church have hearts that beat for vulnerable believers, God will send the babies in here and they'll be born into the kingdom and we will watch them grow up and grow into Christ. And guess what they'll do? They'll turn around and their hearts will beat for vulnerable believers and God will send babies here and they'll be born into the kingdom. This is why the church doesn't exist for us mature believers no more than a hospital exists for the nurses and the doctors who work there it exists for the people who walk in the door who need their care such is the mission of God's church amen Amen. that's who we are that's who we are And Paul says, uh, I wanted to come to you again and again and again. What happened? Don't underestimate this. Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. If Satan wants to do anything, and I'm talking to folks this morning in two different categories. Some of you here, you have parents, your parents and your teenagers are vulnerable right now. And you've got to get off your sofa and in their bedroom. You've got to get off your sofa and into their world. And you've got to begin to let your heart beat for them spiritually. Not a popularity contest in school. Not how well they can do academically. Not how well they can do athletically. But spiritually first. God's given you that responsibility. No one else has it but you. But then there are others and you're vulnerable. You sit here this morning and your faith is fragmented and life has dealt you uh, some pretty tough blows this week and you need God's help. You're vulnerable. Welcome. Glad you're here. So glad you're here. Satan wants to derail you. Jesus said in his own words, the thief referring to Satan comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I've come, John 10, that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Satan wants to destroy you. You say, oh, but Jerry, no, no, he hates you. Why? Because you belong to his arch enemy. He despises you. Parents, if you have teenagers who are seeking to live it out in in school, Satan hates that and hates them. Don't for a moment underestimate the enemy's desire to derail you in reaching out to vulnerable believers. Some of you have led somebody to Christ, and guess what? They've messed up, and you're mad at them. 
get over it. Get over it, work through it, go to them, and don't give up. What does he say? Satan hinders us. Then this image, which is unreal, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Let me pick that apart, unpack it just a tap for you. Hope, joy, crown. Let's get the word crown, pull it out. What is he talking about? Well, the word can mean two things. One, a crown that, like the, you know, Caesar wore, but the other, uh, which most likely in all of Paul's writings seems to me, mean is the crown that when you had run in the games and won, it was a laurel crown. They put it on your head. So the Olympics wasn't a gold medal. It was a laurel crown. They put it on your head. You would stand on the podium. And when you stood there, they would say, you won. So what does Paul say? Let me unpack the second phrase. We'll put it all together. The Lord Jesus. Occurs nine times in this letter. Nine times in First Thessalonians. And nine times in all of Paul's other writings put together. So you've got to ask yourself, if you're a serious student of Scripture, why Paul packs this letter with Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, when you combine Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philemon, when you combine all of that, uh, Timothy, Titus, it occurs nine times in all of that and, and as many times in this one. Why? Thessalonica was a Roman, uh, Romanized city, uh, very much attuned to the Caesar. And if the Caesar was going to show up, number one, he'd be called Lord Caesar. And the whole city, this port city, would be waiting for his arrival. Paul says, hey, Lord Caesar, whatever. Lord Jesus, he's the real Lord. Not Caesar. Jesus. Number two, when he uses this imagery, he appeals to something they know very much about. The official visit of somebody from another country. He knows very much. They would know that. They would go, wow. The appearing, the coming of Lord Jesus. So let's put it all together. Let's put it all together. What does he say? You are my crown. What does that look like? All right, Lord Jesus shows up, right? One day he's coming back. And Paul is saying, or I'll see him. And Paul is saying, when I get there and I stand before him, and there I am, Paul the apostle, before him, there will be a crown on my head. And it will be spelled like this. T-H-E-S-S-A-L-O-N-I-A-N-S. Not the books I've written. Not the miles I've traveled. Not the training that I've done or the education I've received. Vulnerable believers. You're my crown, Paul says. Wow. If it is the measure of our effectiveness for God, will it be who stands in line behind us and we just step away and go, crown, crown, there they are. You college guys in the room and gals, 
Look around at these students. How many of them is their walk better because of you in their lives? Crown. Crown. Passionately love vulnerable believers. How about group leaders here? Will you be able to stand before the Lord and go, uh, some days I wondered if I was getting it right. Crown. Jesus, Lord Jesus, crown. There they are. They grew up to love you. Crown. Parents. Parents. The measure of your kids' success. We live in a world where we have a love affair with sports. Are you able to step away from that and go, they know you, Jesus, crown. There they are. Passionately love vulnerable believers. Secondly, labor with God for vulnerable believers. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, I love that. When we could bear it no longer. I got to tell you this, that word bear, it, it literally means a thatched roof. And I'm like, Why in the world, Paul, would you use that? It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It means a thatched roof. Here's what it means. All right, so I just got back from Africa. They have thatched roofs. It was a dry season, thankfully. Uh, it rains four months in Senegal. And during those four months, those thatched roofs take a beating. You know what Paul is saying? It said when the rain had beaten down on the thatched roof so much that finally the roof gave way. That means the roof could bear it no longer, right? When we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy to you. We sent our trusted servant. I mean, Paul says we, we uh, were willing to be left behind at Athens. We were willing not to have young Timothy with us because we wanted him to be with you. We were willing to give him up. We were willing to let him go because we had to hear how our Jason and crew back in Thessalonica faring. Do they still love Jesus like they did when we were with them? We said, Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker. What an interesting phrase, God's co-worker. Uh, doesn't mean God needs any help. We know that. But for some reason, God in his design has decided to use us. It's, it's wild, all right? It's wild, but he has. He, he uses you. He wants you to uh, birth uh, children into the family of God. I know you don't make him born again, but when he uh, uses you to lead them to Christ, he wants you to disciple them and to help them grow. Th- that's your job. That's, that's what you do, and you pour into them. And he says, uh, God's co-worker, one whom God employs as an assistant. You're God's co-worker. I remember when I went to South Carolina to grad school, I worked for Dr. Shanley. He was an assistant VP of the school. He was an assistant VP, and I was the peon to the VP. All right, that meant I did everything he wanted me to do because I was a graduate assistant. That's all you do. Whatever they say do, you do it. Right? That's what you do. That's what I did for a year. It helped pay for school, so I did it for a year. Right? I was his, his, his peon assistant. All right? So he's assistant VP of a massive university. I'm just working for him. And he called me in one day and he said, I'm writing a chapter in a book. Whoa. That's cool. You know, I'm 23 years old, 24. That's pretty cool. He said, I'd like for you to co-author it with me. Wow. 
You know what that meant? Would you do all my research, do the writing and let me put my name on it? Because that's what happened. I did all the research, wrote the whole chapter, took it into him. He, he tweaked about five things and sent it to, the, to the, the, the editor of the book. And there it went. My name never showed up anywhere. Why? Because I was the peon, right? To, to the assistant VP. That was my job. Now, uh, uh, God doesn't treat us like that, but that's how it rolls out. Paul says again and again, the glory doesn't come to me. It doesn't come to me. Chapters will be written by God and you will have been a co-worker in the writing of that chapter in somebody else's life. But is the goal of it to stand then up and say, oh, look what she did in my life. Look what he did in my life. No, no, that's not it. It's not it. God does the writing. We co-write with him. God does the work. We co-work with him. And when he brings it to fruition, when he brings it to fruition, so a parent in our church got this just this very morning. I was walking in. She said something about her daughter. I said, you've done such a great job. No, it's the Lord. You know what she meant by that? <laughs> not on my best day. Could we pull this off? All right, so we just couldn't. Like, I'm not consistent enough. She means certain things by that, and we all do, right? One of ours that you lead to Christ walks with God. You step back and go, look what God has done. Look what God has done. Look what God has done. Labor with God for vulnerable believers. What is the goal of that labor? Let me continue to read to you. Here it is. To establish and to exhort you in your faith so that no one be moved by these afflictions. Here's the goal. To establish. That's our goal for every young believer in this church. Get you firmly rooted and grounded. Established. And to exhort. Warn and encourage. Call out sin when we see it. Call out good things when they happen. That's what we do. That's what we do. We exhort, we establish. Why? Because afflictions will come. Amen? Trials will come. Trials will come. We have quite a few students who will be heading to college. Guess what, students? You think your faith was tested in high school? Nothing like college. Nothing. Trials, afflictions will come. They will. Our goal for Hannah has always been that she loved the Lord more, be stronger in her faith more when she graduated than when she went in. That's our goal. Goal for Trent. Trials, afflictions will come. Establish, exhort. Number three, remind vulnerable believers of what you've already told them. Remind them of what you've already told them. Uh, I love the way Paul words this. Verse 3, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. He's talking about suffering. He says, you know this. That phrase, you know, I think occurs, I think, 12 times in this letter. You know. He says, you know. Uh, Look at verse 4. He continues, for when we were with you, we kept telling. That means we said again and again and again and again. We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. All right, so, so I'm going to ask you a question. This is a raising a hand survey here. All right, so everybody get ready, alert. All right, this is if you have children. All right, if you have children, have you ever had to tell them the same thing more than once? Raise your hand. Oh, oh my. 
Oh my, we are the masters of repetition, are we not? I told you you can't do that. Three minutes later. Did you not hear what I just said? Right? I mean, I mean, have you ever done that? Please hear me, please hear me, please hear me. How in the world do we think it's going to be any different with a vulnerable believer? What? We think they're all going to figure it out day one? Come to the altar, maybe in, the, in, in their home. Didn't you love Sylvie's testimony? Hilarious. We saw it last week in the second service. And then in, in the first, Ryan's sitting over there. I love it. You know, she said that driving down the road, realized she needed Christ. And I know that uh, the Burlesons met with her and Alan Michael met with her. And she trusted Christ with her life. And then she said this. I have not lied in several weeks. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Jesus works, right? <laughs> he changes lives. You know, I haven't lied in several weeks. Do you know what uh, 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 Ryan and Jen are going to have to do? Get that video and play it about once every three months. Remember this? Um, why? That's what we do. All right, with children, we do it with newborn babies in Christ. Guess what you keep saying? No. Remember when we talked about this? Remember that? Remember this conversation? And it's again and again and again. And do you know what they all say? And what uh, they go two forward and, and one back. And, and if, you, if you get tired of the one back, you'll grow weary. Reminded of Isaiah who says, do not grow weary in doing well for you will reap in due season if you do not faint. If you're ever going to lead somebody to Christ and you're going to disciple them, that has to be your mantra. Do not grow weary in doing well for you will reap in due season if you do not faint. May this be a place where people are allowed to trip all over themselves. And we don't kick them when they're down, but we go, hey, could I help you up? Amen. Amen. Listen, if you're here and you're vulnerable this morning, you're surrounded by a group of people, none of whom have arrived. None of us. We're still trying to figure this thing out. Why? Don't underestimate this. Second time it shows up in this section. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I I sent to learn about your faith for fear. Paul says, That somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Oh, it's it's a real fear, isn't it? Satan's real. He really works. Could I say something to you? I know this because I know them. Our group leaders in this church fear this for you. If you're in a Bible fellowship group, if you're in a a group that meets at home, the last thing they want to see happen is somehow their, their, their years of pouring into you be in vain because the tempter stepped in and tempted you. I close with this. This week I sat with a student who's known the Lord, but he's in the battle of his life 
And if I've ever seen Satan play tug of war with a young man, the Holy Spirit is on one end and Satan is on the other. And there is a battle raging for him. The number of texts that have come back and forth from his phone to mine, in addition to the meeting, as I labor and pray that the tempter will not win. This is real. Satan knew it. Jesus knew it. He looked at Peter and Peter told Jesus he wasn't going to die. Peter has that distinction of being the only apostle that Jesus called Satan. What a resume. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus said, you guys, you'll turn. Peter said, I won't deny you. And Jesus said, yeah. And he said, but I have what? I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Jesus. Jesus' declaration of that incidentally didn't mean it had to happen. It was a warning. Peter still had full capacity not to deny Christ. But he did. Jesus looked at him. And he turned out. And, and he, uh, he wept bitterly. He left. And he started fishing again, didn't he? Jesus resurrected. Peter went to the tomb. But Jesus went missing. And uh, Peter went back to fishing. And Jesus found him. Fishing. Poor guy. Both times he shows up in scripture fishing. He can't catch anything. And that's what he does for a living. And so what does Jesus say? Well, let's throw over here and they catch some fish. And when they do, they go sit down on the shore. And in one of the tenderest scenes in all of scripture, I think Jesus looks at Peter. They eat together. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Don't, don't miss the last interaction was Jesus' hurtful glance and Peter's bitter weeping. I'm convinced many of us would have checked Peter off the list at that point. That's my point. Here, Jesus is back. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Feed my lambs. That's hefty. It's one thing to love somebody, but when you're willing to put uh, vulnerable people in their care, huh? You trust them. They eat a little more. Peter, do, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I do. Feed, feed my sheep. They eat just a tad more. Jesus looks over. Peter? Do you love me? 
Lord, you know I love you. Then tend my lambs. Scholars debate this. Why? Why three times? Don't know. Very well could be that for every time Peter denied, Jesus gave him the opportunity to affirm. Three denials, three affirmations. Jesus loves vulnerable believers. Do you? God bless you. You can go.